Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to the award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you the story of how the NCAA tournament field is selected. The tournament, which is also known as March Madness for the last 40 years, is one of the largest sporting events in the United States. In terms of total revenue and viewership, this is on par with the Super Bowl, but unlike Like the Super Bowl, which is one game on a single day, the NCAA tournament involves 68 teams playing in 14 different cities over three consecutive weeks. Organizing such an event is an absolute masterclass in logistics and project management. But today's story is not about how the tournament is organized. That topic could be its own episode. No, today's story is about how the teams are actually selected for the tournament. But before I get to the mechanics of how the teams are actually selected, let me take some time to talk about who does the selecting. The NCAA forms a committee of 10 people who are tasked with, among other things, selecting the tournament field each year. This 10-person committee is made up of athletic directors and conference commissioners. Some of the athletic directors are also former coaches, which helps in getting selected for the committee. Each committee member serves on a five-year term. Serving on the committee does require a lot of work to be done but it also comes with a lot of perks. For example, each committee member receives two tickets to the final four for the rest of their lives, and they receive all access badges to the final four also for the rest of their lives. They can walk anywhere they want at any venue on any weekend of the NCAA tournament. The committee meets in person four times per year in addition to regularly scheduled conference calls to discuss tournament business. Each yearly cycle begins with an in-person meeting in July on a resort property with a golf course. During that meeting, the committee reviews the most recent tournament for any potential policy or rule changes that need to be made for the following year. It even includes a review of the broadcasts of the tournament games to make sure that the announcers are sticking to policy. One of those policies is that the announcers must specifically say NCAA and not NCAA. Each infraction gets reported back to CBS, their broadcast partner. The committee then meets in person for the second time in December in some warm weather city on a resort with a golf course. There they begin to put together the plans for the upcoming tournament. They meet for a third time in February in Indianapolis, the headquarters of the NCAA, in a high-end hotel and they go through a mock selection of the field based on how well the teams are doing as of that week. 
Each member takes copious notes on how each school is performing and they use that as somewhat of a baseline for when they get back together in March to make the final selection. When they do come back in March, they take over the entire top floor of the Westin Hotel in downtown Indianapolis for nearly a week as they watch the various conference tournaments on TV and begin to narrow down the teams that they want in the tournament. Now there is another assignment that each committee member receives at the beginning of each season. Each member is assigned three or four conferences to especially keep an eye on. In other words, each committee member is tasked with becoming the resident expert on three or four conferences and the teams within those conferences. That way, when it comes to the March selection meeting, the member can provide the most detail on a team from their conference that is being considered. The committee members need to watch as much college basketball as they can to be as prepared as possible for the final selection. Now this is a good place to take a pause and I'll be right back with the actual selection right after this break. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the story of how the NCAA tournament is selected. We just covered how the committee is formed and what roles they are assigned to in order to be the best prepared team to make the selection in March. As I mentioned, the 10-member committee convenes in Indianapolis in March to make the final selection of what is a 68-team field, but they do not have to actually select all 68 teams. 32 of those teams are automatically selected by way of winning their conference championships. In NCAA Division I, there are 32 basketball conferences. Each conference has the freedom to figure out how they choose their champion. There are a handful of conferences that use the regular season standings. In other words, whoever finishes the regular season in first place is the champion for that season. For most conferences, they have a postseason conference tournament. So that means that a team could finish the regular season in first place, but they will not be crowned the champion unless they also win their conference tournament. Just one bad game and they could get knocked out of their own conference tournament and become vulnerable of being left out of the NCAA tournament. If a school is from one of the power conferences like the Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, SEC, ACC, or Big East, then they could finish second, third, fourth, or even in fifth in the conference and still stand a very strong chance of getting into the NCAA tournament. But if the school is from a smaller conference like the Patriot League, Colonial Conference, or the Ivy League, then you have to win your conference to get into the tournament because the committee is only going to take one team from each of these small conferences. So again, 
32 teams are automatic. The committee then usually takes everyone else in the top 25 national rankings that did not win their conference tournament. That typically gets the committee to around 50 schools selected. The last 18 schools are where things start to get real inside that selection room. For the most part, the committee has a very strong idea of who these 18 schools are as they have been having conversations and comparing notes for a month while watching nearly every game they can. As each team comes up for discussion, they vote as a committee on whether or not to put the team into the tournament. They also use other metrics like strength of schedule and RPI rankings. The RPI stands for Ratings Percentage Index, which is a mathematical formula that helps determine how a team is doing against its schedule. So, a victory against a top 10 team is going to rate much higher than a victory against a weaker school. At the other end of that formula, losing to a top 10 team will not hurt a school as much as losing to a bottom team. Basically, it gives weight to each win and loss based on who the opponent was. The committee loves using the RPI to help them make their selections. So it becomes time to vote these teams into the tournament. These early votes are pretty easy for any team finishing in the top five of a power conference is pretty much a no-brainer, but it gets really heated when it gets down to the last two or three teams in the tournament. At this point, each member is trying to make a strong case for a team that they are assigned to watch all year. Members have been known to storm out of the room for fresh air. One committee member would jump down onto the floor and start cranking out push-ups to burn off the adrenaline from arguing. But then the heat in the room gets turned up to an inferno. There are some conferences that have their championship game on the same afternoon as the committee is supposed to announce their selections. Sometimes these final games end up giving the committee less than an hour to make the final announcements. While selecting the teams is one enormous challenge because there are always going to be a couple of schools that are going to have their feelings hurt and they're going to go on ESPN and lay out their case for why they should have been in the tournament, but that is just the beginning. Now the committee has to begin seeding the teams and matching them up to specific venues. They have to figure out who plays whom. Now that is equally challenging. Which four schools are going to be the number one seeds? Once you have that figured out, which ones get to play their first game closest to home? That is a reward for being a number one seed, getting to play as close to home as possible. And that makes it easier for the fans to make the trip. But then they have to do the same thing with all of the second seeds, and the third seeds, and on and on. They also have to try to keep teams from the same conference from playing each other in the first round. In that committee room, they have the names of all 68 schools on a huge board that looks like a tournament bracket and they are moving them all over the board. They might take the number 13 seed from the East region and switch them with the number 13 seed from the Midwest region in order to avoid certain conflicts. The later it gets on that Sunday afternoon, the crazier it gets in that room. Their broadcast partner CBS makes a big deal about Selection Sunday when they announce which teams are in the tournament, and of course, which teams are not in the tournament. The committee is often scrambling until the final moments before the broadcast to get the teams exactly where they want them, and they sometimes have to consider other things, like in the case of BYU, Brigham Young University. That school has a policy of never playing sports on Sundays for religious reasons. Therefore, when BYU makes it into the tournament, the committee has to make sure that BYU is in a portion of the bracket where the schedule has them playing on Saturdays and not on Sundays. I think you are starting to get the picture that this process is not easy at all. I can understand why the committee members only serve for five years. That is enough to burn out anyone. But once they have served, they get to enjoy the final four access for the rest of their lives without all the pressure. 
And if you're a big fan of Selection Sunday, then keep in mind that just moments before Greg Gumbel or whoever begins to announce the brackets, the committee members are absolutely exhausted from five straight days of selecting teams. By the time the selections are announced, the committee members are all on their way back to the airport to fly home because they have day jobs that they have to attend to. Now, it is time to share a personal story. I am a graduate of Santa Clara University, which is located in the San Francisco Bay Area, just outside of San Jose. During my freshman year in 1993, our team was able to win the conference tournament in a major upset over the University of San Francisco. The students were all going crazy on campus, and I was one of those students. We made it into the tournament with an automatic bid. The only question was, who was going to be our first round matchup? I remember watching the selection show in a packed dorm lounge. Team after team was announced, but they still hadn't said Santa Clara. It was getting near the end of the show when they announced, number two, Arizona, against number 15, Santa Clara. And there was a huge groan in the room. We were all saying to each other, we're better than a 15 seed, right? The University of Arizona was the fifth ranked team in the nation with three starters who would be playing in the NBA the following season. Those three stars were Chris Mills, Khalid Reeves, and Damon Stoudemire. In addition to that, they had four other players who would eventually spend time in the NBA as well. That is seven future NBA players on one college team. That is what we were up against. Meanwhile, Santa Clara only had one future NBA player, and that guy was also a freshman like me. And he was not even a starter at the time. He was the backup point guard, and his name was Steve Nash. And I'll be honest about this. I would be a liar if I told you during our freshman year that Nash would ever play in the NBA, let alone become a two-time league MVP and a Hall of Famer. Like I said, he was still the backup point guard for John Woolery. A very nice guy, a good player, a good leader, but he never played in the NBA. So, the following weekend, I was watching our first round game from my home in Southern California as it was going into spring break. We played out of our minds and won the game on clutch free throws by Nash. We were only the second 15th seed in history to win a first round game. It was one of the most massive upsets in tournament history. And that is why so many people tune in for these first round games. It is because of the possibility of seeing a major upset. That is what makes the tournament so exciting. March is one of my favorite times of the year because of this tournament. Hopefully you feel the same way. And I hope you have a deeper appreciation for what the committee goes through in selecting the 68 teams that play in the NCAA tournament every year. I do not envy those people at all. During my time in college, I got to meet an active committee member, and what he described is not for the faint of heart. While they are all happy and proud to serve, they are also happy to see their term end. It is an enormous job. Well, that does it for today. Join us next week when we celebrate and release episode number 100. It has been such an amazing trip to get to this point of having 100 regular episodes. And what better topic for episode 100 than Will Chamberlain's 100-point game? That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman. 
aka the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.